0: This is the Diaspora Dialogues podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of DD. DD helps emerging writers turn their craft into a career through a series of programs, including professional development seminars and public talks and conversations. We record all of those in order to share the amazing talent and thinking and writing taking place in Canada. This next episode we recorded in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and it was an on-stage author interview between the moderator Nigan St. Clair, who is a Anishinaabe writer, editor, and professor at the University of Manitoba, and David A. Robertson from Norway House Cree Nation in Manitoba. David is a comic writer and YA writer who's published many books and has just signed a multi-deal with Penguin Random House. And they really look at both the current and future exciting things going on in Indigenous literature in Canada.
1: Pleasure to be here. My name is Negan Sinclair, and I'm uh, I'm our host for today's podcast. And uh, I'm here with my cousin slash colleague slash longtime friend and somebody I deeply admire, Dave Robertson. I would go into the long explanation of Dave but what I would say is that Dave is not only a writer he's a father he's an uh, an activist and he also does an incredible amount of uh, I don't think it could be a lot of credit but they you know you do a lot of educational advocacy work and you've worked with First Nations in Manitoba for I want to say like a decade now in developing technology and for young indigenous people to learn how to read and write and so you're not just a writer, but you also have done this all this educational work. And we're here today to talk a little bit about your career, a little bit about some of the work that you're doing and your recent book that you've released, and then also a forthcoming memoir. I've always found it funny when people who are my age write memoirs, but... Uh, Bob, Bob wrote his when he was like 20. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so in that vein, you've written a memoir, but of course, it's not just a memoir about your life. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go. But I, I don't think a lot of people know that we're cousins. Right. So, do you want to talk? You want to say a little bit about how we're cousins, or about how we're family? And because uh, I don't think—I mean—I think you're just trying to ride on the coattails of my family. But <laughs> I, uh,
2: but but go ahead. I just yeah, because I think if you're associated with you, <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're then your career well. is done. You're I'm surprised well. you even made it this far. But you're doing well for yourself. <laughs> Maybe talk a little bit, like because it goes into traditional adoption, right? And right. Uh, so I believe how it worked is that my oldest auntie Elner, Adopted your dad into her family following a death uh, on our side of the family, and so uh, Murray became essentially, you know, adopted and became Eleanor's son, and so became my cousin, and we recognize that as uh, as as a family. Like we we don't. uh, It's it's something that we're when you're traditionally adopted into, and this happens often in our communities, often with a loss, and it and then you're viewed as family. This is something that I I, I consider Negan uh, family and Marie uh, as a family, and it's uh, that I think that strengthens the connection that we already have. But it's something that I really, I honestly just I, I cherish, even though you know you can be difficult. But <laughs> there will be a lot of family
1: secrets shared today, and it's on a
2: podcast, so you'll be done by noon.
1: <laughs> right? will be your career will be done. And, you know, we are here to talk about your work and your career, and uh, so I'd like to hear a little bit about I you know I know some of these stories, and so I'm gonna push you in certain directions, but tell us about, uh, I know you became a writer very early in your life, but what is it that really inspired you to become a
2: writer? For me, I'll I'll answer that, I guess, in writing about the things that I write about now. And, And that's really when my writing career took off. But what it was, was, you know, I was raised really detached from my Indigenous identity. I grew up without that in my life at all. Um, I didn't really really even know I was indigenous until probably I, I was in middle years in, in school. And my dad and my mother um, weren't living together at the time. And and when my, when they reconciled their relationship, and I had him in my life uh, in high school and, and onward, and they're still together today, that reconnection for me was very important because I learned so much about my dad for the first time, and I didn't really know any of that before. And, and I think, like, for me, when I talk a lot about identity in, in my books and, and in schools... We talk about how uh, you, you know so much more about yourself when you understand what came before you. And so that was certainly true in my life. And, and knowing uh, about my dad's life and where he grew up in and, and Norway House and his career and, and where his career has taken him and the decisions that my parents made to not raise us as indigenous and why, all of that taken as its whole, when I started wanting to write professionally, I wanted to provide resources that I guess would do two things. One, it would it would educate Indigenous kids, First Nations kids, in schools about um, these histories, cultures, uh, contemporary issues that I missed when I was in school. I felt like if I had that access when I was in the classroom, my life would have looked differently in my formative years. And then, and the other side of that, um, because there was so much rampant like racism and the perpetuation of all these stereotypes, which f- formed a negative self perception of myself, and also just like a negative. Uh, perception of Indigenous peoples as I was as I was growing up, I wanted to change the narrative for our, for non-Indigenous people learning about us in the classroom and in literature, and so that's been a real a big focus of my career, and is what I've done through all of my books. It's been I always keep in mind what am I teaching, and so whether it's like an Indigenous supernatural murder mystery or whether it's a children's book, it's always like what can I teach through these words, and that's that's the focus that I've had in in my career, and that's really what inspires me to write all the books that I do. I mean,
1: so many of us are inspired really by the things that were absent, you know, and I think about the reason why Warren Carey and I really worked hard on the Manitoba that that Indigenous writing anthology in Manitoba, is because I never saw that growing up. I literally could go through your entire high school life. I did go through all of my work, becoming an English teacher, literally having never read one Indigenous voice. And at one time, I read April Raintree by my own choice, not because it was asked of me. And so that's interesting. But I think what's also interesting is that there is something within indigenous men that our fathers, for one reason or another, good, bad, great, ugly, were not a significant part of our lives growing up. And in my case, my father was on the road all the time. He was a lawyer traveling up north, and then my parents split, and I saw him really occasionally every couple of weeks. And you too have a great absence with your father. What is the role of absent fathers for young Indigenous men shaping our lives? (laughs) And I don't mean to get to, I want to really talk about that for a moment. I think it's important because I think a lot of men out there, when I work with men in the prisons, young men, a lot of them say, I have no father or I have no father that I I never
2: see. It has a profound impact on our communities because, you know, as Indigenous kids growing up, those are our heroes and our role models. I mean, my dad was my role model and my hero, even though he was never around, and I didn't really see him very much. I didn't know him very well. And it was a, it was, it's a very kind of confusing like dichotomy in that way. Um, and, and so in, in missing that, I grew up one way. And it, it was the way that I don't think my dad even intended for me to grow up, even though he made the decision, even whether, whether he was there or not, made the decision that he, they were not going to raise us to be First Nations. And so the fact that he was removed then from the equation, I think doubled down on that intent. And so what I've tried to do, I guess, in in talking about the, the absence or presence of fathers in my life, is is to be there with my children. And traveling is difficult because I'm, I this fall has been difficult because I've been been away a lot from home. And so, but be present in my in my in my family so that they can see. I can model behaviors uh, with, in, pe- in particular, my sons, but also to instill the values and the, and, the, and the knowledge and the traditions in my own children that I missed when I was growing up. And So I'm trying to, in that way, kind of break a cycle that I feel like um, has been perpetuated historically through, um, through circumstance, through trauma, through you know, colonialism, and I think that's how we need to do it. I feel like that kind of intergenerational trauma requires that same sort of uh, approach to, to healing. Uh, it requires an intergenerational healing. I think that uh, that's what I'm trying to do with my kids now is to be, and uh, and I sound like I'm speaking badly about my father. My father is my best friend now. And uh, he's, he's someone that is uh, when he came back into our lives, he was making up for lost time. He was uh, an attentive and loving and, and, and caring and present father in our lives uh, when he came back to live. now, that has changed me. And I've seen what that absence did to me and what the presence in his life did for me. And so I've been trying to model a different sort of thing in my life and and because I recognize the impacts that it had on me and not having him around.
1: Reconciling with fathers is arguably the most important message in in your work. And it finds its way almost in everything. But yet you didn't start there. Right? Your first graphic novel is on the Helen Betty Osborne story when you're working with the Helen Betty Osborne Foundation. And if you get a chance to see not the more recent Betty, but the original uh, Helen Betty Osborne graphic novel, it is a, it is probably one of the most interesting graphic novels I've ever read in my life because, you know, you were working from scratch. You were coming up with a, a way to do a graphic novel with people and a publishing world in Manitoba that really had no idea about graphic novels other than, the small markets here and there that were developing graphic novels but generally not a big market here in Winnipeg uh, not a big publishing industry in Manitoba for graphic novels. So you really made up a graphic
2: novel on your own based on a historical story. do you want to talk a little bit about that and so when I was starting to figure out like what I wanted to write and, and why I wanted to write it the only th- the only thing I really wanted to do was to do it as a graphic novel because I recognized that when I was growing up um, it was the only thing that I would really want to read and I felt like it would be such a, an effective tool in the classroom. Uh, And so I decided that I was going to do a graphic novel. My decision to do it on Helen Betty Osborne was, I think, born out of the idea that through her story, there was a number of different things that you could learn about and we could teach. So whether it's missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, residential school history, segregation, racism, sexism, indifference, geography, like all these things were in her story and there. And so the development of the book was interesting because around that time, there weren't many other. Indigenous graphic novel was being written in Canada. I think the Aboriginal Healthy Network was the only one that I can recall. Uh, Richard Van Camp did a couple. of... Jojig was working. J. O. Jig, a J. O. Jig bit, was doing yeah. it. Yeah, uh, a bit of that. So I was also. I also had to teach myself how to do it. And so that the graphic novel, I think, has value, but it also is very raw, and it's um, you can tell it's an amateur job, but there's a lot of heart in it too. You know, but
1: it is so fascinating because. In that graphic novel, and if you get a chance to see it, I encourage you to look at it because it breaks the conventions of graphic novels, I think, into unintentionally. Probably. <laughs> We're just figuring it out. I mean, because you literally take photographs and then remake them exactly as the photograph, but it's a gra- but it's a comic.
2: Right. Yeah, there are. We integrated real photo photography, but that was actually intentional because what I wanted to do was and what I've found in the graphic novel form is that you're actually, the power of it is you're actually to show history rather than to have readers imagine it. And I feel that there's a, there's an importance when you're talking about these, impo- these difficult subjects, like history, like residential school history, like re- missing, murdered indig- indigenous women and girls, to show the reader rather than tell them. Because I feel like it creates this sort of a, an accountability to become involved in the issue, I think, in a way. So... Yeah, so in, in that in that book I used um, some real photos of the crime scene of her, you know, her clothing, I think. and um, the movie theater. In the movie theater, I used the real photo of the movie there was theater. was a movie
1: theater in uh, the Paw where they would separate indigenous and non-indigenous people watching the film.
2: Yeah, so I think I knew I was doing that, but I didn't know that that was something that was really done that wasn't done. Well, that's the thing you know? is
1: that it's like <laughs> the aesthetic or the the sense of art that comes across in the piece is very much a narrative of a real life event but it's also told in a way that's very accessible for young people. And you can talk about a very harsh event, which you can't talk about Helen Betty Osborne's murder in any way other than that's very traumatizing for everybody. But you were able to make it in a way that young people felt empowered and interested in, and engaged in that story. And, and that's, what, that's the real art of it. And you sold out. I mean, that graphic novel sold out. I mean, everybody had it. It was on multiple winner lists and
2: so yeah, on. Yeah, it was sold 5,000 copies. We printed 5,000 copies. I should say, too, that like for that book, I, I had donated all my royalties to the Helen Betty Osborne Foundation, so uh, which was very important for me as well. And the the sequel as well, the, well, not the sequel, the, 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 the reimagined story, Betty, um, which I did when I was a more seasoned writer. And you, I think you can tell the differences in the approaches to the story. It's uh, more like a comic book. Yeah, like that one, the, yeah. the 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 proceeds to that also go to the foundation. And, and as well with Sugar Falls, all the proceeds go to the foundation for that book also, which was very important for me to do.
1: There's so many different areas I want to talk about, but we have a limited amount of time. But I really want to spend a little bit of time before we talk about your recent work by talking about really the book or I guess the series of books that put you onto a national platform had deep impact with so many different young peoples, but became has really become one of the go-to with all Manitoba educators and in the public as well. But it's the Seven Generations series, which had four pieces to it. And if I can remember them well, there was, uh, I always remember Ends Begins, but that's the last one. The third third last one. That's the third last one. No, no, the, second
2: la- no the second last. I think people yeah. think of it now as one story, but they forget <laughs> it that it's four. It's, it was yep. a mini series. It was serialized first. It was a serialized uh, four book series. Uh, there was Stone and Scars and Ends Begins and The Pact. Yeah. That's right. And so it tells a
1: story of a young man who, uh, Edwin, right? Right. Who yep. commits suicide, tries to commit suicide, is encountered by his mother, and then his mother tells him, a his life story going all the way back to the smallpox epidemics to pre-contact times coming all the way up to the present to reconciling with his father who's a residential school survivor a little bit of a biography in there i think a little bit a little just bit. a little bit and Daddy i mean but issues. it is a fictional story and it's and it's a story about how a young man comes to relationship with a father but what was the process of writing that and then over this span of 3 years really
2: right yeah, that was a difficult one to do. And what I really wanted to do with that story was, was I, 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 and most of my books have the theme, not only, I guess, of fatherhood and and parenting and, and father-son relationships, but they also have this uh, theme of how does the past impact us in the present? And how do those, two, what does that relationship, that interrelationship look like? Uh, how do those two things intertwine? Uh, and so what I wanted to do with Seven Generations was I wanted to talk about the impact of history on this boy. And so, and how much he could learn about himself and heal from that learning by even learning how they lived, you know, six generations previous. And so the first uh, book was really a story of of pre-contact life and trying to like um, dispel some of the misconceptions that we might have about how First Nations people lived before contact. Because when I was a kid, what I had thought I had knew was that we were these savage Indians, uh, because that was the stereotype that was perpetuated in popular culture. Book two is about uh, the impact the disease has had on First Nations people historically, and in particular smallpox. But I think at its heart, what this book really is about, and it was really one of the first, I believe, uh, certainly graphic novels, but indigenous own voice stories that talked about this concept of reconciliation at at an intimate level. So I wanted to, what I wanted to talk about was the intergenerational effects of the residential school system uh, and how trauma is passed down but also what healing looks like within a family because I think that sometimes we forget that about reconciliation is that it's not just this broader concept of it it's like we have to reconcile within our own communities and families too because there's still brokenness that that is there and so I wanted to look at that in this book as well so the process of developing it was pretty difficult because I had this really huge, ambitious, expansive idea about what this book what might be. What I had to do was I had to, and, it, and a lot of the books, like in, I think in the Pact, it goes through five different timelines, uh, and so it was like storyboarding a lot. It was like a lot of like sticky notes. It was figuring out how all these how all these things weave together, and what what's the thread of the narrative that I'm trying to get at in 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 addressing all these timelines. And what, and what I'm trying to say through the theme. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an ambitious project. And I'm, I'm really proud of that book. It was actually the first professionally published book that, that I had. And I, I'm, I'm really glad that it stuck around in the school system even today. And I've heard so many stories of kids who, in particular, indigenous children in school who have connected with themselves through reading that book. And kids who not only like, who connect with themselves, but who also become more engaged in school because they've they've seen themselves reflected in the stuff that they're learning from I've heard so many amazing stories about that and that's something that makes me feel good about um, what that story has been able to do over the last you know eight nine years
1: and one thing a two and not to keep harping on I mean I think this is my first meeting of you as a writer per se one thing that happens within seven generations that's so interesting is the conventions of comic book that you use in an indigenous story which while others have done it in other ways like I I see such influences of the Watchmen. I see influences of uh, Justice League and Marvel in your work, in the ways in which you panel, the way that you use what's called, what we refer to in graphic novels as the gutter, which is the space in between panels, the ways that you talk about echoing. I'm thinking about panels in, uh, in Seven Generations where you literally show the present is the past, and it's the same panel and just a mirror image. When I teach that graphic novel, I find that it's it's not, you know, it's something you could really teach as a piece of art. And so I know that Scott also tells me that you're incredibly micromanaging.
2: I am. I which really is am. A, the illustrator that <laughs> David works with
1: most often. So
2: I am. I have very particular visions about how I want story to unravel in graphic novels. And I do think a lot about how we can play with gutter, the white space between panels, how we can play with like juxtaposition and how how the images in the story are so much as as much or more of a storyteller than the words, and so what you can do with images, because really with a graphic novel, um, the only limit is your imagination. So I love that about them, and so I do play with gutter, I do play with like uh, mirroring, I do play with all of these conventions of the comic book in order to lend more weight to the to the, what I'm trying to teach through the story. One of my th- the favorite most my most favorite things I've done with in Seven Generations was there's a panel, and this is like directly talking about intergenerational trauma and how difficult that concept is and how you can address it in two panels. So in, in, in Nens Begins, there's a panel of, uh, of a priest uh, looming over Ed, uh, Edwin's dad's little brother with a belt raised ready to beat on him. And then um, a, a page or two later, you see um, Edwin as a dad in the same position as the priest looming over his son with a belt and so in those two images, it's so powerful because readers make connections be- between those two things. And, and without saying one word, you're talking about how trauma is passed down. And I thought that was so powerful to be able to do that. And, and so you can do a lot with images in a, in a comic. And I try to do as much as I can. In my defense, um, Scott, I allow Scott to do a lot more now than I used to because he understands how I tell a story and I understand how he tells a story. But when I have a very specific vision for how I want those things to be told through images. I do make him do it the way I want to do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, there's uh, lots of now. You brought Scott in the equation, makes me think about a lot of other things. I mean, in terms of working with an indigenous artist, right? Working, I mean, how does that uh, work? But what I, you know, I want to move on a little bit, okay? And I want us to talk a little bit about uh, a series that I don't think a lot of people know about. But you've done, I don't know, what is it, 14 books on indigenous heroes?
2: Right, tales from Big Spirit. And yeah, so.
1: But you've done it not just in terms of national Canadian Indigenous heroes or Indigenous heroes in relationship with Canada, uh, but you've also done it out on the East Coast. Right. So you want to talk, speak just a little bit about that? I don't think people would know about that series. And literally, you've done
2: 14 books, which is, um, is it 14? I think it's tw- 12, 12 maybe? So, okay, so six yeah. each, six each? S- seven and five. Seven and five, yeah. okay. Yeah, so when, with Tales from Spirit that's what the series is called uh, in the, it's available throughout Canada. It was, a, it was a, a comic book series that I wanted to do two things with because I hadn't read a lot for elementary school kids. So I wanted to tell a story that was uh, for younger readers and for the elementary school level, which uh, which tells the Big Spirit is. I also wanted to have a story that um, addressed something beyond the more difficult uh, subjects in history that I've ha- I had addressed previously. So it doesn't address directly residential school history. It doesn't address uh, missing and murdered ind- indigenous women and girls. Something that I think we need to do more of is talk about the positive stories in our country that we, we were involved in. So like how indigenous peoples and in histories have helped, have helped shape this country, whether it's Tommy Prince, whether it's Gabriel Dumont, whether it's Santa Delth or Pauline Johnson or Shauna Dithit. I mean, um, that was something that was really important for me to, to do. So Tales from Big Spirit is a series of seven where each comic book is about one indigenous person who is a hero in Canadian history and, and how they helped shape our, shape our country. It's I think it's a stereotype smashing because what is what it's doing is it's it's presenting role models of indigenous people that students may not have known about before, probably didn't. And then they can see that, hey, like, you know, for someone like John Ramsey, it's like so Gimli wouldn't be here unless it was for this Cree guy. You know, and I think that's so that's so cool to know that. Or Churchill would not be here if it wasn't for like a teenage a Dené woman. I mean, that is—that's amazing to know, right? And so we just don't know those stories. We know about the trauma, and I think that's important to to be able to have stories like that. The five book series for Newfoundland was is called Tales from Shadow River, and it's a kind of a spinoff of that series, but it addresses specifically Indigenous peoples who lived in Newfoundland, Labrador, and who were uh, lived and did amazing things for Canada, but also in that province. And right now, it's only available in Newfoundland, Labrador, but. um we're trying to get rights to be able to bring those stories throughout Canada because it's about some amazing people like Mary Webb, who is this midwife, midwife who delivered, like I think, over 700 babies and there had not one fatality and did way more than that. And a guy named John Shywak, who was a soldier in World War One, who 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 gave his life for his country and who and, and who uh, died in the Battle of Cambria. And so um, these are stories that we need to know about. And so uh, I think comics are an amazing way to reach a wide readership and to tell of these stories um, in a way that we can learn from, but also engage with and and be changed by. So you've got this
1: burgeoning, exploding, well-publicized, well-sold, making a good living off graphic novels. And then uh, you say, no, I'm going to try something else now. And you go to uh, your publisher, which is Portage and Main Press or High Water Press here in, here in Winnipeg and you uh, turn to them and say hey i want to start writing uh, novels
2: <laughs> right
1: uh, and young adult novels right, right? and uh, how does that how does that conversation start because i think uh, i know Kathy and Annalie, who uh, will be embarrassed that i mentioned their name on the podcast but <laughs> Probably but, uh, will, yeah. but i know them very well and and i know that they would have been very happy with you just continuing graphic novels continuing that the sales were great but then you decided to change gears and go to, uh, to go novel become a novel writing and i remember the the phone call that you made over to me and say i'm going to be a novelist and i said what are you doing like <laughs> you, know, you can just try to do anything and so what led to that
2: and you want to talk a little bit about some of the novels that you've done since so the Ra- the reckoner trilogy um which the two first two books are out strangers and monsters um, actually started about 10 years ago before i had my first book published and i was watching all these tv shows and i thought so like so much so many things about the tv shows are amazing and so many things suck about them like there's so many um, narrative errors that they're making. Um, what kind of TV shows? That's like, I remember uh, X-Files was X-Files one X-Files was right one, uh, Lost was another, okay. and like Friends. And, uh, and, and, <laughs> Please and, write uh, that down for the podcast. Your and, uh, influence was Friends. And Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. And, and I was thinking about all these shows that I really liked, but the errors that they made. And I wanted to do a show that would uh, reflect all of these shows that I love, but also avoided the, the errors that they had made in their, in their storytelling. And so I came up with this um, story called The Reckoner, and um, I great, paid this great pitch document, and I was approaching producers to have it made. And um, I actually had it optioned by a, a Kistican picture. No, Kistican? Kistican Pictures? through a Buffalo gal. A Buffalo girl. Buffalo gal? I don't know. I forget. Anyway. And so we optioned it, and we went into a writer's room. Jordan Wheeler was in there, Sarah Snow, who wrote for Degrassi. We wrote six scripts for the show. And then years went by and it never went to camera, which show it happens with TV. I mean, sometimes the shows get started and they never finish, never go to camera. So I got the rights back to it. And I thought I loved the story so much that I wanted to see it done. And so um, I felt like the world was so expansive and it required so much storytelling that it just wouldn't quite work in a graphic novel. And so I decided that and I wanted to write novels for a little while. And so I decided that I was, wanted to do it as a series, a, a novel series. So I approached Catherine and Anneli and I just said, this is my idea. This is what I want to do. And do you want to do it? And they've been really good for me. So they, they've, they have a lot of faith in the work that I've done. I remember books have done really well for them. So I think they were almost like throwing me a bone. And they were like, sure, you, know, you, can, we'll, you can do it. You know, uh, we'll see how it does. And, uh, and so, yeah, so The Strangers came out um, a, a year ago. Monsters just came out a month ago. And, and Ghosts is coming out in the spring. And I want to do a couple things with that series. Uh, really, two things specifically. One of the things was that, like, our representat- representation in superhero genre of the and co- comics in particular, uh, First Nations representation has been so bad. I mean, it's, comics have been so bad for us um, historically. And you, you've done a lot of work in comics in, in our representation. And so I wanted to tell a superhero origin story in a novel form that would try to undo some of the damage that comics have done historically. So I wanted to. Present characters who had like agency, who are authentic, who are well developed, who had their own thoughts and feelings and emotions, and defied stereotype, which was very important for me. So Cole Harper is this like guy guys who the seventeen year old kid who's trying to learn how to become a superhero. At the same time, he's dealing with severe mental health issues. So he has severe anxiety, and so his every superhero has a weakness, and his is perceived to be this mental health issue that he's going through. So he has to, you know, the interesting thing about this is that it, it, sometimes it's sometimes it's as hard for Cole to get out of bed as it is to fight a monster. And so I thought that was so interesting to do that. And because and, and I deal with mental health issues myself, I wanted to have a book where kids who are going through something like that, you know, anxiety or depression, to be able to see a character that's going through the same thing. Because so I feel like reflection in literature is so powerful. And so uh, some, and I've had kids, every time I go to a, a school, Every time I go to a classroom and talk about this book, there's always one, two, three kids who come up to me after and say, I have anxiety. I want to talk about it now. And so that is, that is such a win for me to, to see that happening. And that those are the two things I really want to accomplish with this series. I, I don't want to
1: get, get, let you get away
2: without talking a little bit about uh,
1: when we were alone, which is I, when I travel and I travel, I mean, i traveled around the entire country. And I work with school divisions, right? In school, with school district boards, in, in Toronto, Edmonton, you know, Niagara Falls, just last week. And you know, every time I talk about these things, they say, "Yeah, well, we can't talk about these things for kids. Like, we can't talk about colonization, we can't talk about violence, we can't talk about genocide with kids." And obviously, you don't use those terms when you talk about. But uh, one thing that, when we were alone, uh, the kids' book that you did, the kids, literally the board book that you did is it made me understand clearly how you can talk about residential school with kindergartners, with grade ones, grade twos, by saying, what does it mean to have a mom? Or what does it mean to have a dad? Or what does it mean to have a relationship with your territory and your space? Uh, you want to speak a little bit about the process of that book? And, and of course, uh, it, I mean, people would probably know that as one of the best things that you've done, uh, or nationally known things that you've done anyways. So,
2: Yeah, it's kinda, yeah that's kind of the book that I'm most known for. It's a really special book. You know, that book, it was looking at the lens of residential schools through a way that would be age appropriate for kids. And what I did was, and I guess my approach was like, um, if we're going to, because the calls to action said we need to be teaching these things in kindergarten to grade 12. We were asking a lot of teachers to be able to do that. We hadn't prepared them properly. And so I wanted to be able to give them a resource that would make their job a little bit easier. And so that book really looks at the residential school system through basic fundamental principles of, of, it, of that history. And we need to do that with any subject we teach. So we teach math to, for, to kids, for example, and we would never ignore math until grade nine and then say, now we're going to teach you calculus. You know, And the kids will be like, I mean, holy shit. I mean, I, I've never like, I, oh, sorry, can I do that? They, they're, like, they're like, I mean, how do you even do addition? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, It would be so intimidating for a child. And I think it's the same with residential school history. You can't just start teaching it in grade eight or grade nine. I mean, we need to build a foundation. And so that's what I wanted to do with When We Were Alone. I wanted to talk about, that book talks about really identity. It talks about identity and it talks about what we can learn from our elders and our survivors. uh, And what what does a conversation look like between a grandchild and grandmother? And what does that connection teach us? And so identity is asking kids to think about what does it look for you if you weren't able to dress the way that you wanted to dress, what does it look for you if you didn't, weren't able to wear your hair the way you wanted to wear? What would it look for you if you weren't able to speak your language? What, what it would it look for you if you didn't have the family connections that you take for granted maybe? And so, and that conversation, that, that empathy is very powerful. And so I've seen it, the power in that book through its connection with indigenous kids um, who see themselves in literature and who recognize the trauma that is in their own lives and have take steps to go through a healing process. That's happened in my own family. My daughter read this book and wanted to, wanted to learn Cree after. It was very powerful. And then also with the non-Indigenous children, you're creating educators. Kids can teach. And so what we need to do is recognize that the change that we want to see in this country is going to come from the kids. And what we need to do, if, the, if that's true, then we need to make sure that we're giving them the knowledge that they need to have in order to make that change. And so that this book, I think, is a piece in that. That we're we're creating uh, kids who are going to be change makers and are going to steer the, this country in the way that we we want it to go, um, and so um, that's what I was trying to do w- with that book. And and um, yeah, I mean it's something that I I'm very proud of, and I'm very proud to work with Julie Flat on it as well. And it, I'm I'm glad that I'm known best for that book. And if I'm okay, if it's if I'm always ever known best for that book,
1: it's a beautiful book, and uh, it's. It's like the go-to gift, I think, for many of us who work in this area, and and it's a gift that we also present. But I've received, I've received it probably a dozen times from people who say, you know, when they say thanks at the end of a talk or something, and and uh, it is a gorgeous, beautiful landmark book that's been very influential. Before we, you know, start wrapping up a little bit, I want to talk about you described your latest project to me and I think elsewhere as the scariest project, (laughs) the most intimidating project, the hardest project
2: that you've ever had to work on. Uh, You want to say a few things about that? Yeah, just quickly before I take questions. It's a memoir um, and I am, I guess, kind of young. I'm in my 40s though, so I'm not that young, but um, I think you're in your 40s too. Oh, Oh, you're not. I'm I'm older than you? I'm 21. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's, it's looking at the relationship between my father and I and and what, that, what it looked like for us to kind of be apart from each other and the healing that has happened in our lives in reconnecting and what that has meant for us. And it culminates into a trip that we took back to his trapline uh, this year for the first time um, in my life, but the first time he'd been there in 70 years. And so it was, it was like, what, what in our lives led us to that moment together? And so that's what that book is. And it's very intimidating because I've never written memoir before. I've never written really nonfiction before in that way. And so it's like trying to find the way in which the, all those narrative threads kind of weave together into a story. And so it's uh, it's been very difficult to work on. It's also been very enriching, but I'm also terrified of it.
1: So if you could just uh, say your name, uh, if you want to ask uh, David, go ahead. Yeah, no, you. Yeah. Hi, Jeff. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into graphic novels, and particularly how you met your illustrator and what your collaboration is like? with your illustrator? What was the
2: process? It was really just like, it was me growing up reading graphic novels and comics and loving them and wanting to write them. Uh, And so, and one of my friends, uh, Greg, would say, GMB Kamichuk is if you want to make comics, then make comics. The thing I love about it too is in developing them is that there's no one way to do it. Everybody has a different process for graphic novel writing. It's not like when you're writing script, uh, movie scripts or television scripts, you have one set, very anal format and you need to follow to do it. Uh, comics are done any number of different ways. Negan writes probably like uh, like a, a story outline. He, I don't think you write a script, right?
1: No, I. Yeah. I, well, I, I do panel by panel, but okay. it's more broad. It's kind of the Marvel style. The
2: yeah, movie. yeah. And I write very detailed scripts, and so and then I guess for finding an illustrator, like I, for me, I can only speak from my experience. I I I got a, a deal from my publisher to write them. I did all the scripts what we did was we went through a, a, a portfolio, like a request for portfolios and, um, and then chose the best art that matched my writing style and what I envisioned for the project, which was Scott Henderson. Um, the cl- collaborative process between me and Scott has, has evolved over the years. I've done about 12 or 13 or 14 with him. But what it looks like is this. He takes my script. He thumbnails them. So he creates these storyboards pretty much. We go through them together to figure out what the final layout is going to be and how each panel will be depicted in the end. And then he goes by and page by page and gives us pencils. We approve those, and then and then he gets into inking and coloring. And so the whole process takes uh, probably about nine to ten months to do, uh, from from research all the way into seeing it in print. The illustrative process takes about five five months for Scott. If he's you know if he's being lazy, it'd be about six months. But if he's being quick, it's like four months kind of thing. But it is a very collaborative process, doing a graphic novel. I mean, Scott's
1: really, you were the doorway into Scott working with how many different Indigenous writers now? Oh, tons, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he worked with Kate Vermette, uh, he's worked and yourself with me. and yeah and uh, Richard the, Van Camp. And I Richard Van Camp, and so uh, Scott has done this, like, sort of cacophony, he's become kind of one of the go-tos in the Indigenous literary world as representing our work, and And uh, and most recently, Scott's been involved with the This Place anthology that we're both a part of. So This Place is an anthology that's forthcoming next year. I was just with some of the editors in Toronto, but it's published right here in Winnipeg. And uh, the concept of that book, which is that there was ten of us who were asked and each given. uh, It was Canada One Five Zero, and of course, many of us recognized Canada One Five Zero had almost nothing, very little, anyways, to do with Indigenous people and our contributions to the creation of this project called Kanata. And so what the project envisions is they each gave us 15 years and they said, retail Canada. Retail Canada from Indigenous perspectives, from from moments, from experiences. And so
2: I got 1990 to 2005. What'd you get? I got um, right around World War One, World because War I, I wrote about Francis Pegamagabo. Okay. And mine
1: was about Oka and uh, Elijah Harper's No and then it ends it with the Kelowna Accord. So I kind of tell this love story. Uh, it's fictional retelling. Some of us did more history than fiction. Mine's a fiction, fictional historical retelling. Yeah, but, mine's history. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it, it is interesting that all of these new projects are coming up. And uh, what is it that you think uh, Indigenous literar- literature is going? I know I asked you that in the previous panel, but I'll ask it to you again. What is it that you think you see coming? Or what is something in your work that you have not yet to do, like... You started off, your very first book was an eight-year-old writing a bunch of poems in class about milkshakes. Yeah. (laughs) Are we seeing Milkshakes Part 2? Are we seeing that coming for (laughs) David? Or what are we seeing? Do you want to be a poet one day? Do you want to do something else? I know probably you want to do movie scripts one
2: day. I do. Um, I mean, I've done poetry in in journals. Um, You know, I've done some stuff with CV2 and Prairie Fire. I'm really excited about where Indigenous literature is headed. I feel like what we're seeing is, is uh, while we're still addressing the, this, the stuff in history that we need to address, we're still seeing work done in residential school, reconciliation, intergenerational trauma, colonialism. Those are things that need to be there. There need to be more resources developed in that area. But we're seeing also this, this move towards uh, more positive stories that talk about uh, resurgence, reclamation, resiliency. And I, and I feel that's really encouraging to see us talking about some of the the power in our different cultures in Canada, and and that's really encouraging for for me. So I've actually moved away from talking about residential school history, uh, even though it's very important for me, and you know missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, which is very important for me because I have three daughters, and you have a daughter. I'm telling stories of uh, you know like the Reckoners trilogy is not a story of intergenerational trauma in the in the way that we've thought about it before. So the, what I have, and the, the memoir isn't really either. Um, it's talking about reconciliation through a different perspective because every, every story is different. The, the, the main products I have coming up be- before, besides the memoir are, um, are a middle grade fantasy series, which is like an indigenous Narnia, which I think is really, really uh, unique and very cool. And it's talking about the foster care system, but it's also talking about like, you know, a traditional story about the constellations uh, and it's adapting that into a, into a fantasy series. And I also have a couple of more picture books coming out, um, which I can't really talk a lot about those ones because they haven't been really announced yet. But um, one of them is um, about a a grandfather and a grandson uh, going out to a trapline together. And so it's not that's just like a beautiful story of like reclaiming, passing down really knowledge and, and traditions to a younger generation. So I think that's a really beautiful thing to be talking about also.
1: We've, uh, we've capped out on our time, but I'm, I, there's so many things we didn't talk about. And what I hope is that you, uh, I invite everyone here to, to read some of Dave's work, but also you are featured in hundreds of different things. And while you claim to be not a social media activist, you're like, I don't often, this is often how Dave starts his tweets. I don't often deal into this, but today, and, and this is like your fourth one this week, Dave, like your, which challenge you taking on this week? And uh, uh, you are very active on in terms of engaging and educating in the public as well. So, uh, so check him out on social media. And uh, I think your Twitter handle is oh, it's uh, Dave Alex
2: Roberts. Yeah, Dave Alex. Roberts. Shortening all my names. That's yeah. right. <laughs> I feel like just to quickly on that one. I mean, I feel like now in my this stage of my career, because I always did shy away from being an activist or being you know involved in controversy in the past. I feel like in this stage of my career, um, being, you know, I guess one of the more established Indigenous writers in the country, along with a lot of my amazing colleagues in that area, I feel like it's almost a responsibility that I do speak out when I have to, because I do think I have a platform that I should. I should. I'm should. i selective in what I do speak out about, but I, I feel like I should. And so I do now uh, much more than I used to.
1: Well, there's plenty of issues to go around. I and... also like
2: doing GIFs. <laughs> yeah, there you
1: go. <laughs> So, uh, uh, like I said, check out some of Dave's work uh, and check out some of the, the forthcoming books as well. And uh, this place will be out next year. The anthology with uh, pour, uh, High Water, High Water Press, and and look for look else for the uh, memoir. Is it named yet? Or
2: the, the memoir is coming out with Harper Collins, and it's, it tentatively is called uh, "There There Is No Word for Reconciliation in Cree." So check that out. And I want to say a huge miigwech to uh, the Diaspora
1: Dialogues for having us at this uh, awesome event which features writers and publishers and agents all in dialogue and conversation of what it means to be a writer what does it mean to do we doubt uh, we we blew up canlet this morning and now we're rebuilding it as we go a uh, podcast at a time and uh, but please join me in saying a huge wetch to uh, to Dave for sp- spending an hour with us sharing all of his work and his dreams and his goals and uh, the best thing you've ever succeeded at which is being a good cousin
0: we hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening.